this is Matt Pennington with Radio Free Asia. Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on Asia, where we look each week at some of the key stories in the region that's covered by RFA and speak to the journalists who cover them. I'm joined by Paul Eckert, who heads up RFA's English service. How are you doing, Paul? I'm fine, Matt. Uh, it's Friday and I'm ready for the weekend. Yes, you and me both. So this week, have you ever wondered what happens to the poor souls who try and run as independent in a Communist Party-run national election? I'll be speaking later to Yang Nguyen of RFA Vietnamese about people who have nominated themselves as candidates without the Communist Party's blessing for National Assembly elections on May the 23rd. That has not been looked on kindly by Vietnamese authorities. But first, our focus is on how another communist party, that of China, is trying to dominate the information space, not just on its own turf, but across the region. Eyes on Asia is delving into how anti-US narratives are being pushed among media-serving ethnic Chinese in Southeast Asia. Over to you, Paul. Today, I'm speaking to Jane Tong from RFA's Mandarin Service about her feature on Chinese information warfare in Thailand, an important Southeast Asian country with a large Chinese community. Trolls and entities connected to the Chinese Communist Party have flooded Thailand with fake news that is designed to discredit the United States and U.S. allies in the region, as well as democracy itself. At the same time as Chinese actors float conspiracy theories on Twitter and other platforms, the Communist Party is buying up and tying up with media outlets in Thailand, playing a longer game of influencing Thai opinion. Thank you for making time for us, Jane. And again, thanks for a fascinating story, which we ran in English as well as in Mandarin. And our sister entity, Benar News, will run in Thai. How are you today, Jane? Hi, Paul. Uh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. How did you become aware of this situation in Thailand with the distorted and fake news coming from China? In, in recent months, we've seen some you know, COVID-related attack direct at Asian Americans that has escalated in the U.S. We've also seen more and more related misinformation, disinformation on this specific issue circulating in Asia. And uh, I, I'm, I first became aware of this maybe around March or April. I would get some checking message from my family or friends from Asia telling me, you know, to be careful while walking on the street in the U.S., be careful of the violence against Asian, sometimes even floating idea like, like asking me, is it still safe to be in the U.S. as an Asian, for example? So I, I was a little shocked. I mean, I live in D.C. and I've seen I've seen all these anti-Asian hate incident news, but definitely not to the level that I feel like I need to leave the country. Then one of our sources in Thailand sent our editor Nadia um, this video in April. In this violent video, you can see an Asian man, you know, lying on the ground, covering blood. And dozens of, you know, Spanish speaker, Spanish speaking men is like attacking him with bats. And and the caption of the video is this is what happened in the U.S. A Chinese person was bitten to death in Los Angeles. Um, that caught our attention. Um, after doing some digging, you know, I realized this video is circulating in China, in Taiwan, in Thailand. And, and, and the common thing is it, it appeared in instant message app like WeChat, Line, Facebook group. So it's a very close communication app and always the same inflammatory anti-US captions. Um, so then I found out this video can be traced back, you know, originally to the prison riot in Ecuador 
on, on February 23rd. It was first uploaded to Twitter by the official. And then in March, this video appeared on Russia's instant message software and, and Telegram. And then by April, the video started to go viral in, the, in Asia, including, I just mentioned, like China, Taiwan, and Southeast Asia. We we're talking to some information warfare expert. They've been closely monitoring the information, information flow. They pointed out this kind of information fit two main themes of recent CCP information warfare. One is the narrative that, you know, Chinese model, Chinese governing model is better than the Western democracy during pandemic. And second, and resonated more with Asian is how they manipulate the, the hate crime incident against Asian in America um, to promote that China is the power to maintain the world order. I found especially to Asian readers or more specifically Asian with, you know, Chinese heritage, the message is simple. The U.S. Sure. is chaotic. China is the big brother. They will take care of and protect Chinese people and all ethnic Chinese population. That's interesting. And sadly, there is real news behind some of this. Because, and the U.S. media is not shy about reporting the embarrassing for an American, these attacks in New York City and San Francisco uh, of Asians, uh, mainly connected to the blame of, on the COVID virus, it's, it would seem. Uh, are you aware of other Southeast Asian countries that are also coming under this kind of Chinese attack? I know from reading comments just in English that the Chinese community in Malaysia, which is large percentage-wise, right. they seem to have a lot of pro-Chinese commenters that sort of carry the Chinese line on places like the South China Morning Post or Reuters or wherever Chinese mm -hmm. news is discussed. These kind of information especially works in countries that has bigger Chinese community. Malaysia is one. I think they have more than 23% of um, Chinese population there. And Thailand is another one. And um, one thing that this work, especially on overseas Chinese community, is first is a language barrier. You know, like some of this message actually flowed in Chinese to the Chinese community there. And this group tend to get their information from their community. So when you have this echo chamber kind of information flow and without any fact check mechanism or awareness of, oh, these, this, these um, message or video might be fake, it's very easy for this group of people to buy into this narrative and to take in all the information their friend, their community is taking in. And another group is the migrant worker group. Um, I think there are a few research found out that Thai or Philippine migrant worker in Taiwan, they became one of the misinformation source that circulate the fake video or fake message back to their motherland. And one of the reason of that might be because, you know, when they're working in Taiwan, in Taiwan become like one of the target of the misinformation campaign, disinformation campaign from China. They take it in and kind of spread it out to Southeast Asia. That's interesting. Uh, you did mention Taiwan in your story. And in fact, you're from Taiwan and you experienced uh, both journalistic career and education there. Um, but also Taiwan in your story was has been raised as an example of a country with experience in dealing with this, and they're getting better at shutting it down. And we had a story recently where there was a fake uh, bit of news that supposedly came from the Taiwan presidential office. 
but they used the mainland style, you know, simplified characters, so they were easily caught. Mm -hmm. Briefly, uh, how does Taiwan come to grips with this, and what are they doing to fight Chinese disinformation? Yeah, I, I think that come down to two points. Um, uh, one is the awareness of China is very, very high of, of their aggression to, to Taiwan. So uh, both to people and to the government, people are aware of what China is doing. And so they get skeptical when the message, like you say, when they come in simplified Chinese, when it came in you know a weird time people kind of hesitate to take in is it real and that few moment of just hesitation is very very important when it comes to dealing with fake news or misinformation and the second thing is um for example my family group my family has a line instant instant message group and um there is a app you can install that can like fact check when your family member send out a link, send out a video. They will immediately tell you in that chat, like this video is false. This statement is false. Um, there is a more, more active fact checking um, from the grassroots, from the NGO in Taiwan. And I think that help also help the public to deal with, you know, all these uh, fake news floating around in the society. And that is something also when I was talking, doing the story and talking to uh, people in the Thailand that I realized that they are a little behind on dealing with it in that regard. Wow, that's fascinating. I kind of feel like uh, Twitter and Facebook could use a little bit more of that here because although they are trying to block things, they, they're not successful all around. So in your story, you also mentioned another aspect of Chinese uh, influence spreading, and that's buying up newspapers or tying up, doing content sharing arrangements. Uh, what's behind mm -hmm. that? How does that work? When we're talking about Chinese communities, you know, information intake in Southeast Asia, I also found out the big source are from Chinese state-owned media. They watch Xinhua, they watch CCTV, they watch all these like local Chinese-run media. And then I found out there's in, in, you know, in 2015, Chinese government actually made a media and information cooperation with Asian country under the Belt Road Initiative. And if you look into the MOU, it's actually adopt very much Chinese propaganda message. The goal is to tell positive stories. Meaning, you know, like they're promoting the Chinese um, infrastructure, promoting the cooperation, but only tell positive stories. CCTV, Xinhua, China Daily, they are providing free content to the local media for them to broadcast. And the result is, for example, in 2019, during the Hong Kong pro-democracy movement, the newspaper and the TV are running the Hong Kong incident from China's angle. And in 2020, during COVID, um, they're running more on this conspiracy, even on the news, they can run the conspiracy theory about when Chinese official floating this idea of COVID might originate by, you know, American soldier, for example. Well, that is kind of scary. And uh, it, it would be, it would pay for us to know just how different Chinese media are from those in Europe and North America and Japan and Taiwan. 
I know there's a lot of cheerleading going on in the Chinese media, but what stands out in your mind, having lived and worked in China, that makes the Chinese media, especially the Communist Party media, different? Having been in Chinese media now, you know, in the Western media, the, the operation um, you can see from the first hand is, is very different. And, and first of all, I have to say, you know, Chinese media, there's state-owned media, and they're also the a different part that they're trying to be more independent and trying to be, you know, not controlled by the government. But I would say in the recent two, three years, there's the, the, the space for them to try to push that red line is getting smaller and smaller and smaller. That's based on my experience, even seeing in 2016, you know, all these news outlets, they're closing up their operation only only thing left in the supposedly newsroom is we we would call it just editor and these editor what they would do is just take in xinhua um, cctv china daily's content maybe repackage it and then distribute i've seen that in fact there are some stories where the all the media in China are directed. You must use only Xinhua for this. You know, some contentious issue pops up. For example, the Wuhan. That those directions right. come right down. You must use Xinhua. You can't use something else, and they discourage reporting. This is a fascinating and almost endless topic, and we unfortunately don't have enough time to go deep into it. But <laughs> I just want to share one funny story with me in my that I dealt with in my time in China, which was before social media. I left China in 2001. The internet was just coming on. Blogs were coming on, but China was still dial-up internet, so none, none of this was happening. But the China Daily, I had friends working for the China Daily, and they uh -huh. said that they used to make up letters to the editor oh. supporting Chinese position written in English. And the way you could tell that the, I suspected this, but I asked people who were copy editors at the China Daily, people who want to work in China but don't want to teach English can sometimes find themselves working for Xinhua or the China Daily. Uh -huh. And the exact talking point on Taiwan or Tibet or whatever the issue was at the day would be repeated, a letter to the editor written by somebody from Poland or somebody from, you know, let's say Argentina. But it was so wow. clumsy. The fingerprints were so strong that they were Communist Party talking points. And when I edited your story and read it, <laughs> I felt the same. Some of these messages, they're just too clumsily, they're too obvious. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that the the, also, the the fundamental difference is, you know, you know, in the West, the the media, the definition is you supervise the power. However, in Chinese media, you are uh, defending the power, defending the party, and that's like fundamentally different. Well, that's a good way to put it: the lips yeah. and the throat of the party. Well, Jane, right. thank you for making time. Thank you for that great reporting. I'm sure we'll hear more from you on this subject going forward. So, thanks, and have a great spring and summer. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. Now we shift our attention to Vietnam, which is gearing up for National Assembly elections later this month. As ever, it will be a one-horse race with candidates vetted by the ruling Communist Party. The election, such as it is, is the second step in the once-in-five-years change in leadership that began with a party congress that took place in January and saw septuagenarian Win Fu Chum stay in the top spot. Revolutionary changes are not expected in the parliamentary elections either, but there are a handful of people who have put themselves forward as candidates without blessing of the party. To discuss this, I'm joined by Yang Win 
from RFA Vietnamese, who's done reporting on this. Welcome, Yang. Thanks for having me, Matt. Sure thing. So Vietnam has got these National Assembly elections. I think it's on May the 23rd. Now, we know a small number of people who have tried to nominate themselves as candidates or talked about it been arrested for trying to do this. Why is it controversial to self-nominate yourself to be a candidate? In Vietnam, we have a saying, it goes something like, um, it's đảng cử dân bầu, which is basically saying that the party nominates the candidates and then the people cast their vote, meaning basically that it's kind of all predetermined by the Communist Party. So um, as you know, the elections are organized by the Vietnam Fatherland Front. Um, they come up with a list of candidates, they organize the process, which more or less is kind of like weeding out the non-sanctioned um, candidates. And during this process, um, as we have seen from, for example, the previous National Assembly election, independent candidates, candidates that are not promoted or forwarded by the party, uh, not endorsed um, by the party that have nominated themselves for candidacy, have faced a lot of harassment, a lot of, um, you know, they've been beaten, they've been harassed, they have been denounced. And uh, in this current cycle, two of the self-nominated candidates at least have been arrested shortly after they nominated themselves. So in short, basically, it's dangerous to nominate yourself, you know, you're putting yourself out there and your family. And um, secondly, the chances of truly independent candidates making it through to become elected is basically zero. Okay, it sounds like you've really got to swim against the tide if you want to succeed right. as a self nominee. So I know you've done some reporting about uh, one person in particular who was arrested after he self nominated as a candidate. Can you tell me a little bit about him? Yeah, I reported on the case of Le Chong Hong because I was interested in, you know, why people nominate themselves if they know these kinds of dangers. And uh, Le Chong Hong is a Hanoi resident. He is married to a wife who's blind and he has two young sons. He was a former teacher and a turned independent journalist. So he is together with several other independent journalists. Uh, they established this uh, channel called CHTV, which is basically they live stream um, on Facebook talking about issues that they feel that are not um, talked about in the mainstream media. Okay, so they talk about things that the government would rather weren't publicly discussed. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about why he said he wanted to run for an assembly seat? In the last election, the 14th um, National Assembly, he wanted to boycott that election. But this time, he felt that he needed to stand for election because he says, and this has been reflected by many people that talk about the election, they say that they never know who their representatives are in the National Assembly. They know, never know who's in there, who represents them. Um, the people that are supposedly their elected uh, representatives are never engaged with the constituents. They don't know what their agendas are. And so basically, they have no faith in the the, the leadership, the, the assembly members that rep, that are supposed to represent them. And so uh, Le Chong Hong says that he wanted to give people a choice and he wanted to show them a different way that uh, the national assembly elections should be run. So he had done a lot of things that we maybe in the U.S. Uh, have seen through political campaigns. He had conducted debates with other independent candidates and uh, introduced even a political platform saying what he would do as a uh, member of the National Assembly. Um, things that he said that, 
we should see from the current elected leaders, but we don't. And so he wanted to introduce this this concept that he thinks is kind of new, I guess, in Vietnam, uh, where you have um, a political platform, you, you kind of like run a campaign, you um, tell people why they should be voting for you. And that's what he wanted to introduce to the people. And through that, basically, he wanted to show, you know, what kind of farce um, that the current National Assembly is, but because constituents never hear um, directly from, from their elected representatives. Okay, so he wants lawmakers to sort of represent their constituents more effectively. Can you tell us a little bit about the trouble he's faced and what this has all meant to his family? He was arrested in late March, um, just a few weeks after he announced his candidacy. And during this whole time, he has been invited to, quote unquote, invited to sessions with local authorities multiple times, um, you know, asking about his candidacy. So on the day that he was arrested, he had come home from um, going to the park with his two sons and um, police arrested him there. They ransacked his house. Just prior to that arrest, he was on Facebook talking about how he had a session with local authorities, kind of like sorting out some of the um, grievances that he had prior to his arrest, actually asked authorities protect the election process to guarantee that uh, people like him could uh, conduct their um, campaign. And then he was arrested. So it's quite troubling because, as I mentioned earlier, his wife is blind. For her, it's been an especially hard time because she relies on him to do everything that um, is facing is happening outside the house such as you know taking taking the kids to school taking herself to work so she's been kind of like confined to her house and even within her house she feels very unsafe because she you know she can't see and the, the kids are young and she is afraid that the, the authorities will um, plant evidence in the house the kids are being monitored as they're going to school. So all of these things creating a very confining, oppressive environment for her. Yeah, I can imagine. So is he still in detention? He is, yes. Okay. Now, on paper, can anyone stand in the election? I mean, is he correct in, in sort of self-nominating? He's got a right to do that? Uh, that is correct. I mean, as long as you meet the qualifications, you, you anyone can stand in the election in theory, but the reality is quite different. Um, we know, as I mentioned, the Fatherland Front um, conducts the election process and they uh, organize multiple rounds of so-called consultations where the candidates must pass through these rounds to make it on the final list um, of candidates. And so many of them um, are weeded out during the process. In the previous uh, cycle, several independent candidates were beaten. This time around, several have been arrested. The, the candidates that, that are truly independent are basically no. Okay, so in the current batch of lawmakers in the, the outgoing parliament, are there any independents? According to the government's numbers, there are currently 21 independents. But when we say independent, they might not be officially affiliated with the Communist Party, but it doesn't mean that they aren't sanctioned implicitly or tacitly by the by the party. Now, looking online, I saw that the turnout for the last elections in 2016 
was 99.35%, um, which might sound very impressive, but it seems suspiciously high. What is the voting system in Vietnam? I mean, is it mandatory for everyone to vote? Yeah, it is. It is mandatory, and you know, you can you can't even find a hundred people out of a hundred to agree that ice cream is a good good treat. But um, a lot of people have recounted elections where you know they are they are being um, bullied into going to cast their vote, and if they say that they can't for whatever reason, I'm sick, you know, my um, I need to take care of my family. Um, sometimes the election board will come to your house with the ballot box and make you vote. Um, people have talked about having uh, cast votes for multiple family members at the same time. Um, so, so you you got got to question those numbers. Indeed. So, what about the actual role of the National Assembly in Vietnam? Is it anything more than a rubber stamp? Does it have a useful role? It is basically a rubber stamp. A curious thing to note, for example, is that the outgoing National Assembly, the 14th National Assembly, has already voted on the uh, several key positions in the government, such as the president, um, prime minister, general secretary. Ha th those have already been uh, voted on. And now the national, uh, new National Assembly comes in and basically just uh, re-elects those same positions. And just the fact that some of the candidates that are vying for a seat on the National Assembly, you know, are current members of the executive branch, such as um, President Nguyen Sung Phuc, General Secretary of the of the Communist Party Nguyen Phu Trong. You know, you have people from the executive branch, judicial branch, declaring the candidacy and very likely being elected um, for the legislative branch. Okay, so it's not exactly a wide cross section of society. So do you think we can learn anything from what happens in this vote on May the 23rd? I mean, do, will it tell us anything about the future direction of the party or the country? In theory, the National Assembly is the highest um, legislative um, body. It is um, in charge of, you know, coming up with the socio-economic plan for the next um, term. But a lot of that, as we know, has already been determined um, after the 13th Party Congress and um, basically by the Communist Party. So the, so the policies have already been established by the party and the National Assembly, you know, will formalize laws to put those policies into action. But there's no no huge surprise that we can expect from this. OK, so no big cliffhanger on May the 23rd. Well, you know, it may be a rather boring and staid political process, but Yang, you've made it very interesting to all of our listeners. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks to Yang and Matt for that look at Vietnam's upcoming election, where the only excitement, it seems, is whether the voter turnout will surpass the 99.35% we saw the last time Vietnamese voted for a national assembly. Yes, Paul, that promises to be a real nail-biter. But somehow I can't imagine the good citizens of Vietnam will be staying up all night for the results. Please join us again next week for another sampling of RFA's coverage. Until then, you can visit our website, rfa.org. Our past podcasts are available on platforms like Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. Just search for Eyes on Asia. If you've any feedback or suggestions, please drop us a line or attach an audio message. Our email is eoa at rfa.org. It stands for Eyes on Asia. I'm Matt Pennington. 
with Radio Free Asia with Paul Eckert. This podcast was edited by Eugene Huang. The series is created by Leo Kim and produced by Radio Free Asia. Thank you for listening and please join us again. 